Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Temporary migrant numbers have doubled in the past 15 years, but the visas they're on don't always provide a pathway to permanency in Australia, which is leading to exploitation risks and backlogs in processing. These are just some of the issues identified by a major review into the immigration system, which we've asked migration expert Professor Anna Barcher from the University of Sydney to dig in with us, explain to us, and it's great to have her on the line. Um, very good morning to you. Hello. Hi. <laughs> there you are. Morning. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we heard from the Home Affairs Minister, Claire O'Neill, um, who commissioned the review of the migration system, which we received last week. And on one hand, the review pointed out that, you know, there are more people living in Australia born overseas than at any other time, which is something to, to uh, celebrate. Uh, but the review also identified major issues. On balance, what state do you see that uh, the migration system in, Anna? I agree with the Minister. It's pretty disorganised right now. There's a lot of tidying up that needs to be done, a lot of new protections put in place to ensure people aren't exploited and making sure that the visas are fit for purpose. And, I mean, this is one of a number of reviews that government has commissioned. Like, I'm not talking about migration here, but into a whole range of policy areas. How long has it been since we've had a kind of root and branch review of the way that we do migration in this country? We've had lots of reviews in the Senate and independently, but this is probably the largest wholesale review since 1988 with the Fitzgerald inquiry. Yeah, and then when this time we've got Martin Parkinson who's led it, and so, you know, in, in some ways a household name, um, those that f follow policy. So, you know, I think that there's a lot of credibility in there and the others and the contribution that there's been made into it from a whole range, hundreds of, of experts. What uh, interests me, Anna, is that... There is such a backlog in Australia for processing. I mean, we had borders closed for years. Why is it that we've still got such a backlog with processing of, of visas in Australia? Um, I think they have improved it quite a lot since the Labor government was elected. They hired a lot more people within uh, Department of Home Affairs. So part of it is manpower or man and woman power. Um, part of it is, as you say, COVID. Uh, part of it is the complexity of the system so people are doing a lot of visa hops so that means more visas need to be processed and part of it is a very aging IT system that um, really needs a, a massive overhaul so there's a variety of factors I will say Australia is not the only country with backlogs um, but ours are particularly bad. Yeah, and, and I suppose another issue that sort of um, relates to, to what you've just said in terms of the, the backlogs and so on and, and visa hopping is the, the sheer number of different visas that we have um, here in Australia. Apparently, I learned from your writing on this that we have over 100 different types. Why is it that that has sort of become so complex? I think the coalition tried in 2017 from memory to do a visa simplification and it just didn't work. Um, I'm not sure whether there wasn't the will or it was just seen as too complicated a task. So with anything in life, as it gets more complicated, it's harder to simplify. <laughs> it's harder to start with a simple system than to make a complex system simple. Um, and so what there's been is all these new sub-visas, like during COVID, these new sub-visas were created to basically keep people in Australia so they didn't become unlawful. And that's just grown over time. And you really need a migration lawyer to navigate that system. 
So some of the visas are maybe less appropriate than others and they're the ones I suspect the government will be focusing on in its uh, attempt at visa simplification. Yeah, and the idea that you can start again, it's like, okay, everyone, you go back and then we'll get a simple system and then you can come back in on a visa that makes sense. I mean, that's not feasible, particularly when people have set up lives here. So what, I mean, with the experience that you've got and, uh, you know, the, the investigations you've done into exploitation, what is it about some of these visas that lead to people having really a difficult time when they're, they're living on them in Australia? Um, I think actually the main issue is one of dependency. So if the person knows that they are reliant on the employer either for the ongoing visa or for a sponsorship, that's what causes predominantly the exploitation. So um, I think if the government can address those concerns, um, there'll be a good way towards addressing them more broadly. There was an argument in the report that wages are also part of that. So that, um, for instance, people below 70,000, which is the tisnet for the temporary skills, could be more at risk of exploitation. I'm sure that's part of it as well. But if you're going to continue to give international students working rights, most of them, most university students will be earning under 70000 a year, right? So you're going to continue to have people on lower wages working in the labour market. And, and I mean, the other people that seem to be on low, lower wages than that because the average uh, income for, say, an aged care worker is about $50,000, $55,000 a year, I understand. So there is... A lot of of our um, care workers, for instance, are are coming from overseas. So they're that group too uh, will earn under seventy thousand dollars. Or will we see that start to go up to the the new threshold that the the government's proposed of seventy thousand dollars? Well, uh, yeah, a lot of international students are actually doing that aged care work. So there's an interaction there with the whole way in which we regulate international student migration. Look, it's possible. I think it's more likely that you would see increases if there was less supply. Um, but from what I understand, aged care is at a crisis point and we can't rely only on Australian workers. So all of that needs to be regulated through the award system. And I understand that there are, um, there are indications that we might see an increase in the award for care workers, but whether it will jump from <laughs> 53 up to 70, I, I, I highly doubt it. So I think that the idea of bringing in um, migrant workers is to address some of that shortage, but it won't address all of it. And one of the main main findings from this review is the over-reliance on temporary migrants, people who might come here for a short time to work, who then have quite sort of limited or at least very complicated ways to permanent residency, pathways to permanent residency. It can be difficult to kind of navigate the whole visa system to stay in the country permanently. And I, I suppose we can understand why that might be really difficult on an individual or, or family level if you don't really have that, that security. But I suppose more broadly in terms of... Um, you know, system and society, why is an over-reliance on temporary migrants a problem for Australia? Well, I think Australia's always prided itself on having fast integration of its migrants and making them into citizens and therefore being very different, for instance, from Western Europe that had the guest worker system. And what we have when we have temporary migrants here for 10 years or longer and then they have to get permanent residency, then they need to wait four years to get citizenship is a movement towards a guest worker society. And we know that's less equal. We know those people can't vote. We know they can't access social services. Um, I think a lot of people will be surprised to know they can't even send their kids to public schools without paying fees. Um, they can't access Medicare. 
in a, in a system which is already becoming very costly for Australians. And so that in, in increases inequality. And I think Australians are, have a strong aversion to inequality. So that's the risk when people are here temporary long-term, which is one of the things that the Parkinson Review identifies um, very carefully. Yeah, Anna Bash is with us from the University of Sydney, migration expert, talking about the uh, review into the migration system that was uh, released last week from Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill, um, pulled together by um, a, a whole group of, of experts that have been looking at it since last year. And one um, you know, concern, I guess, bubbling up at the moment across Australia, Anna, is... Uh, cost of housing and access and supply of housing and the idea that Australia would host more, uh, you know, fill skills gaps or, or um, you know, host more migrant workers is where do they live? Are these the sorts of issues that were also dealt with in the review or do you think will be you know, dealt with now that we have the review? They weren't centrally in the review. They they were dealt with in the past a little bit by the Productivity Commission in its 2016 report, but housing's arguably worsened since then. So I think it's kind of a separate issue. It also depends on where the migrants are going to go, whether they're going into areas where there's already sort of um, housing crisis or less so. Um, there's less pressure in regional cities than in capital cities. But even there, we know um, rents and um, mortgage prices have been increasing. So, yeah, absolutely, that has to be part of the puzzle. I think that's why it's such a complex policy area. It's not really just about migration. It's about everything. It's about care. It's about revenue. It's about tax system. And as you say, it's about housing as well. Yeah, and reform needs to kind of happen over time. This isn't an issue, as you say, that can be solved overnight. Where do we go from here? I mean, what are the things that that can and and may be done in the short term to start to rectify some of these issues that you've outlined? I think the Minister in her speech to the National Press Club identified a few sort of low-hanging fruit, raising the tismet, um, addressing the issue of regional migration, looking at the way student migration is regulated, regularising people who are on temporary visas currently, giving them pathways to permanence. So there are a few things that are going to happen pre-budget. My strong suspicion is that we will see more announcements leading up to the budget on this issue. Um, But doing a wholesale visa simplification is a big undertaking and um, that, that will probably take several years to achieve and what you also need to do is have transitional arrangements because we're dealing with people not objects so people can't just be deported Mm. (laughs) Um, and they might not want to be deported and then they become unlawful and then you have an undocumented migration problem and then you become like the United States and I don't think that's what we want because that increases inequality so it's actually really important that the government I'm sure they're aware of this designs good transitional arrangements if they're going to phase out certain visa subclasses yeah, and I mean, skills are a big part of that. And, you know, this skilled occupation list, look, I haven't looked at it, but I know over the years, uh, pro- you know, professions or, or industries get added to that. And there's discussion around why hairdressing versus, I don't know, welding, um, those sorts of things. Is this an area as well uh, that we're going to see work done on, Anna? Well, yeah, I suspect so. The list is highly criticised in the report. Um, as being inefficient and what happens is especially with the advent of AI and other technologies is we're seeing occupations emerge in the labour market that don't even exist on the list like the list is completely out of date but my view is we still need some way to select migrants we still need to know somehow which um, migrants are in demand and which aren't 
And for that, we do need some form of list. Um, that will probably be developed by Jobs and Skills Australia, so with a more transparent process and hopefully more expert-led than to date, where there was arguably quite a bit of lobbying around the construction of the list. Um, and we may see some changes to the way migrants are selected more broadly through the points test. But it's important to remember, like, there's a lot of focus on the list. Most migrants are not selected through a list. The working holiday makers are not selected through a list. Um, international students are not selected through a list. Uh, visitor visas, like, there's a lot of the people who are contributing to this um, um, record norm, net overseas migration, that have never come through a list. So addressing the list is part of it, but that's not going to completely solve the problems either. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a big policy area and it looks like there's, um, there's some changes afoot. It's been really wonderful having your insights on Triple R this morning, Anna. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Triple R. Tasmania looks set to have its own AFL team with the federal government's announcement of some $240 million towards a new stadium at Hobart's Macquarie Point. There's been years of lobbying for the traditional footballing state to enter the AFL, but the stadium proposal has been controversial, particularly among Tasmanians, with many questioning the government's priorities. And there are so many social issues that need addressing, such as housing, health and education. Martin Flanagan is a football journalist and writer and long-term advocate for Tasmania's future as a footballing state, and he joins us now on the line. Welcome, Martin. Great to have you joining us. Thank you. And so at long last, Tasmania looks to have a, a team entering the AFL in the coming years, but this comes with strings attached. What are your thoughts on the most recent news? Well, um, I don't know how much you know about Tasmanian football, but it's not in a healthy state. So, for example, in the last 100 years, the west coast of Tasmania has had over 100 clubs and eight different associations. Now it has zero associations and two clubs. Um, if you put a line through Tasmania at Oatlands, uh, so beneath it would be over one-third of the state, um, including the Greater Hobart area, there's only 20 football clubs left down there. And um, so over the past few years... Uh, the whole idea of a Tasmanian team, uh, there was a revival in that idea. There was popular support for it that had articulate leaders. Uh, and it was it was great, you know, this revival was happening and it was the best thing that could have happened for the game. And then out of nowhere comes this issue of the stadium, which has split the whole state. It's split the whole island. And... Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's worse than that because a lot of footy people are opposed to the stadium. And the other thing which people don't factor in is that Tasmania's not the place it was. Um, first year I came back three years ago, I think a third of, that, a third of the houses in Launceston were bought by people from Sydney. So it, the, the place has gone through a huge cultural, demographic change, and um, I think they've picked the wrong city to have a fight with in Hobart because there's now an enormous... There's a very strong coalition. They've got everyone from the RSL to the Greens against the stadium. Um, and I had someone who's high up in the AFL, or high up in, the, in, in AFL footy circles ring me the other day, and I said to him, it's not, it's not out of the question that there'll be public street protests against it, because it's Hobart's a city that's it's not like Melbourne. Melbourne's, you know, last great civil disobedience, uh, you know, it's had, it's had incidents of it, but Hobart's got people who fought the Pedder campaign, who fought the Franklin River, 
They've just fought two huge battles to stop a cable car going up Mount Wellington. Um, if they get the idea that this is something being imposed on them from outside that they don't want, they'll fight it. And so, I mean, what you're saying is that community support was is vital for this stadium to well, get well, off the ground. But, I mean, the linking to the stadium to the club, to Tasmania having a football team, that seems like at the heart of what might have changed even football people's minds about Tassie entering the, 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 the no, AFL. No, no question whatsoever. Mm. No question whatsoever. The AFL with Tasmania, they're like the Americans in Vietnam. Even when they try and do the right thing, they do the wrong thing. I mean, you know, I can only use very simple language to say the AFL has they've stuffed it up down here again. Um, this whole stadium thing, um, they have They've torpedoed, they've, they've torpedoed, they've fractured the footy community at a time when it, that was the last thing uh, the footy community down here needed. Uh, it was already on the back foot. And, um, yeah, that, for me, this is a sad day. Yeah, it's it's really uh, I think sort of interesting to hear about that rich history of of protest in Hobart um, and Tasmania more broadly, I suppose, because you know watching on from the mainland, there's a lot of kind of celebratory language around the fact that Tasmania, you know, looks to, to be set to have an AFL team at long last. And, um, and you know, there's these artist impressions of the stadium as having a roof and being, um, you know, kind of a, a new big shiny thing that we can have down in the southern state and have concerts and, and all that sort of stuff. But when you read, um, you know, journalism from the likes of yourself and, and others, um, voices from, from people down there, there seems to be real opposition to it, along with that, that really kind of broad coalition as you say, of the RSL, the Greens, independents, and even some sort of Liberal MPs who are opposed to this. So where do you sort of think this goes from here? There is the announcement of the federal government funding, but, I mean, what might that kind of opposition, I suppose, look like? Well, it, it could get ugly. And um, I would say the stadium's a long way from being built. Um, you know, this is... It's, the, the whole thing could not have been handled worse... Um, you know, Tassie needed a team. Tassie was entitled to a team. There was genuine grassroots support for it. There's no... There's, I, I, I live in the north of the island. I know one person in the north of the island who's for it. One. Um, and in Hobart, you know, the figures... There are people... I do know people in Hobart who are for the stadium. But um, the, the coalition of people who are against it and it's it's now become really sharply focused on this issue of um, of housing. Tasmania's got the biggest homeless rate in Australia, mm. and it's now become focused on the stadium v housing. Um, the only argument for the stadium that I've heard that I respect is um, is uh, Matthew Richardson's Matthew Richo Richardson, um, because in the 1960s Tasmania produced six of the great footy geniuses. One of whom was, was, was Peter Hudson. Peter Hudson started with the Upper Dermot Football Club. They no longer exist. He then played for New Norfolk. They are struggling to get numbers. He met, so he met the game at the local club and through high schools. It's no longer played in high schools. When he finished with Hawthorne, he went back to Glenorchy. Glenorchy is now struggling for numbers. The big problem down here is that footy, you know, the, the great cliche, it was more than a game, and 
you know, if there was one thing I loved about I loved about Melbourne, and I certainly did love Melbourne, but when I was growing up, there was this shit that you know, sports over that side, arts over that side. If you're in one camp, you couldn't be in the other. I hated that. And one of the things I, I loved so much about Melbourne was you could be interested in footy, you could be interested in culture, you could be interested in art, you could be interested in books. And it all added up to this one great pulsating culture. That was Melbourne for me. And that, that's the magic of the game, that, 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 that it goes to all these places and all these people and you get this great collaborative, you know, culture out of it. Um, that's also dying down here. And, um, yeah, it's sad, mate. It's mm. sad. So, I mean, what's the politics of this, Martin? Because I mean, it seems with such a grassroots push for such a long time in Tasmania to have have the Devils enter the competition and ha- get that AFL licence, that for now to flip into you will now have club now that you've got a stadium. I mean, that would be... That just seems like really unusual politics. And also we heard the... the Well, the federal government sort of indicate they didn't think there should be a stadium as a price for entry, and now they're supporting it. So, I mean, what is, you know, we've got the new Premier in in Tasmania not wanting to pay as much, it turns out, but then they are. What is is the politics? The, The AFL's attitude towards Tasmania is, is one of, historically, is one of exploitation. They were interested in Tasmania insofar as it produced recruits for the AFL and, and for the fact that it, it, it provided a guaranteed television audience. I mean, some of the, the stuff that's gone on down here uh, in terms of the, 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 the actual body I hold most responsible in this is the AFL Commission, Richard Goiter and the AFL Commission. Their job is to protect and nurture the game. Down here, that has not happened in any meaningful way or any... It's not that they haven't tried to do things, but the AFL is really only a bureaucracy and it, 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 it operates on a top-down. You know, we get Lachlan Murdoch on side, we get Kerry Stokes on side, you know, we talk to this big player, we talk to that big player. Um, that's how they, they run as an organisation. And at some point, if this game is going to survive, because if it dies down here in Tasmania, it can die anywhere in Australia. And, and at some point, if this game is going to survive for our grandkids, um, then the AFL has to completely rethink its fundamental philosophy and it has to become a bottom-up organisation. I know it has to be run in a business-like fashion. I know it has to secure the big deals. But the stadium is a classic example of politics being done at a certain level without regard to the reality on the ground. Yeah, speaking with journalist and uh, writer Martin Flanagan, um, a football journalist for many years, um, based down in Tasmania these days and talking about um, the, the well, what looks to be the, um, the launching of a Tasmanian AFL team following federal government funding towards a stadium down at Macquarie Point in Hobart. And, and kind of on that... Martin, I mean, reflecting on some of the challenges with the, the teams that have entered the AFL most recently, especially the Gold Coast Suns, areas that don't have a kind of traditional footballing base. I mean, one of the reasons that it's hard to attract players to, to those places is that there isn't a strong kind of grassroots culture, I suppose, around football down there. And given that, that Tasmania kind of has historically had a very strong football culture, but that has really waned 
in recent years um, and also reflecting, I suppose, on, on what the AFLW has, has done, I suppose, in a positive sense for engaging um, young girls at the grassroots level to, to become involved in football. So this kind of can be done. There can be broader community benefits that flow from, from AFL kind of led initiatives. What, what would it kind of look like to properly engage with the grassroots down in Tassie to, to sort of revive and support the football and culture that, that has been there for so long? Well, what I would say in response to your question is I want to see a Melbourne journalist, an AFL journalist, do a story on Tasmanian football that doesn't talk to the AFL. Uh, you read stories in the Melbourne media about Tasmanian footy. It quotes the AFL. It's like doing something on aviation safety and only talking to Qantas. Yeah. I want to see an, a Melbourne journalist come down here and talk to the people, the volunteers who are actually the lifeblood of the game down here, who are actually keeping clubs alive. Um, and, because if the clubs go, the game is gone. Because it's not in schools anymore. So it, 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 and it, it's just going to become a television game. Um, and I, I want to see a journalist come down here and talk to those people about how what what we can best do, what is now in the game's interest. The other people who should be speaking on that, not me. I, I'm not out there doing the work. Let, let's talk to the people who are doing the work. But but at very least, there is a huge cultural battle to be fought here. I wrote an article in the Age about six or eight weeks ago, and I said the most significant moment of of my 2022 season because I fell alongside in the NTFA, and so me and my Mate Gordon Cuff, we get out to Longford, 1.30, and the senior game's on. And I said to the people there, how come the seniors are playing early? And they said, oh, it's the under-18 round. And so they had the under-18 game as the match of the day. So the, the seniors lined up and clapped them onto the field, and the cars tooted their horns, and the crowd applauded. Um, and it's because the under-18s are walking away from the game. And, um, and to some extent, They've missed the wave with AFLW um, in, in the way that that's transformed footy, as I understand it, in places like Queensland. Um, so that, that that that's what I'd be doing is is I'd be talking to the people who are Tasmanian football. Stop talking to the bureaucrats. Stop talking to people that you know the careerists. Start talking to the people who are the lifeblood of the game down here. You know, I read it, read something you wrote about Tasmanian footy, I think, from a couple of years ago, and you, you focused on the stadiums. And I guess now that this money's come through for upgrading a stadium in the north of the state and also the new proposed stadium in, in Hobart, it seems that Tasmania already has iconic stadiums. So, you know... Well, the one, the yeah. one, in, the north, the one in the north certainly is. Um, that, that's, that is the old... Uh, ground known as York Park. So my grandfather went to games there. That's it's now called Utah Stadium, I think. But um, so that's absolutely iconic. Um, the game in the ground in Hobart is another old ground. I, I'm not such a big fan of that ground. I've got to be honest. But um, but. Tasmania has got grounds on which AFL games can be played, yes. And I mean, and this, you know, might sound like a, a Melbourne question, actually, but, you know, these days it seems to me that the draft is what dictates players, so, and you're particularly new players, so if that, that groundswell in Tassie, say, say this team gets up despite the controversy now, uh, is the idea that they're going to move players there? Or, I mean, what's, what even happens, oh, yeah. Martin? 
Well, that is exactly what happens. I mean, you, the, if Tasmania comes in as a fully qualified member, it goes to the national draft and it gets pick one, three, eight, and nine. They've got to come to. They have to come to where the Tasmanian team is based. But it's whether they'll stay here. That's the. You know, all these clubs. Brisbane's had problems holding players. Mm. All these Western Sydney's had trouble holding players. Uh, that's always been a concern. And you know, I, I live in Launceston in Northern Tasmania, but. Um, and, and there are some people who think the team should be based here, but I don't think they would do, um, you know, I don't think it would be easy to hold play, players in Launceston. Launceston's a wonderful place to live if you're a bit older, but when you're 19, 20, 21, I don't, I don't think it's... We heard that from the Hawks but... captain, didn't we? Sicily. Mm. Sorry? We heard that from, from Sicily, um, kind of, you know, suggesting that people might, players might not he be did. so keen to live down there, yeah. Yeah, he did, yeah, he yeah. did. Um, um, the one, the one argument for the stadium is the one that Matthew Richardson has made. Um, you know, because that's that's the point. You know, like how do we get the next Peter Hudson? Like, this is where the AFL, I think, is blind. Is that you know ha- we've got to get the next Dusty Martin. We've got to get the next Gary Ablett. We've got to get the next Royce Hart. The, the, the great players what make it a great game, and. Um, and Matthew Richardson says, and he was a great player, he says that, you know, if he was a kid growing up in Tasmania now, he would want to play on, on at the Hobart Stadium because it would be the best facility. And 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 you've got to give that, oh, I do. I, I, I have to give that, that, that argument some way. Yeah. It's been really great having your insights um, this morning on the show, Martin. Um, I mean, as you say, we, we tend to hear a lot from AFL kind of executives on these issues. We're really glad to have spoken to you, someone who's followed the game and, and done your own nurturing of the game for some time um, and, and written really beautifully about the state of football in Tasmania as well. So uh, really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. No worries, mate. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.